glad to be uh, here with you. My name is Ian Havercroft. Yes, I'm Paul's son. If you didn't make that connection, that's who I am. And uh, in the early 2000s, I worked here. I was uh, an intern and then eventually a church planting intern and planted James North is, uh, James, the, the James North Church plant in the east end of Hamilton and pastored there for 13 years before moving, uh, just before COVID, to uh, a new church out in London, and that's where I am now. And all to say that, um, James North has always felt like a second home. Uh, from my years here and then the years as we were church planting, the support and encouragement that was constantly coming our way uh, from this church family has uh, made those bonds strong. And now to have my mom and dad here, that just sweetens the pie. And uh, thanks, Dave, for the welcome. Glad you're here and your family. And uh, was, yeah, just keenly interested in that whole process and glad how God brought things together. We're going to be opening up our Bibles today to Revelation chapter 3. And this is the final, uh, the final message in this series on these churches in the first part of the book of Revelation. So you can uh, get yourself ready there. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. I want to tell you about Sarah first. Sarah was 19 years old when she started to learn about the persecuted church. And she was reading and going online and discovering all kinds of things, like how Christ followers in Somalia are killed by their families for converting from Islam to Christianity, learning how believers in Iran risk everything to own a Bible, everything, and how regulations in China have made it illegal for teens to attend church and illegal for teachers and pastors and parents to teach religion to anyone younger than 18. And yet, they do so, they do so, and many are arrested and imprisoned. So she's learning all this stuff, and here's what it did to her. Here's what she says. She says, I've considered myself a Christian for almost all my life, but the lightness with which I've approached my faith is devastating in contrast with what others are risking. I see my reluctance to spend time with Christ, read his word, and be with his people. I've leaned back in comfort. I've declined to talk about Jesus. I'm thankful for religious freedom. I'm thankful for what wealth I have, but freedom and wealth have sown seeds of complacency. And she says, I don't long for persecution, but I do long to be shaken out of my apathy. And did you hear anything there? Did you hear anything in Sarah's confession about complacency, about apathy, that would match your own confession as a follower of Jesus, at least from time to time? I mean, could, could your walk with Jesus ever be described not with words like passion or diligence, but by indifference, reluctance, or boredom? In Canada, we've got our troubles. For sure we do. We've got our troubles. But it is still relatively easy for us to coast on by as Christians, to feel like our greatest needs are taken care of. Sure, I mean, I could use a little more money. I could use a little more health. 
I could use a little more stuff. But I wake up in the morning, and it's so easy to feel like I don't need anything. Not from God, anyway. You ever feel like that? And the trouble is, when that's my attitude, I make Jesus sick to his stomach. When you cannot see your daily need for Jesus, you become the spiritual equivalent of spoiled milk. <laughs> Nothing puts the believer out of touch in their relationship with Christ like spiritual apathy. Nothing does it quite like spiritual apathy. And like Sarah, right, when, when we realize that, when we start to see that in ourselves, how, how lightly, how reluctantly, how complacently we've been living with Jesus and for Jesus, we, we understand that, that we need something. We need someone to shake us out of it, to shake us out of it, shake us out of our apathy. Now, there's a few things that can afflict your soul. There's spiritual fatigue. There's spiritual depression. There's spiritual oppression. And all those things can create a fog in your Christian life. Today we're talking about something different. <laughs> something different. Something that's coming from, from the deadening of your own desires. <laughs> spiritual apathy. And so, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22 Jesus sends a letter. He sends it through a vision to his servant John to the church. But Jesus sends a letter to a church in the ancient city of Laodicea. And right, this is how the book of Revelation starts. You know this from the past few weeks, right? Seven letters from the risen Jesus in heaven written to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, what is now Turkey. And each letter is personalized to the specific trouble and temptation of that church, whichever church it may be. Because each church, in its own way, is at risk of falling away from Christ. And so Jesus, in each letter, he charts out their path to victory. If you want victory over that trouble, if you want victory over that temptation, here is the path. Here is the path to take. And the result is... When we hear these letters, when we, when we read these seven letters taken together, we understand that there is something in each of them that Jesus wants to say to every church. There's something in each of them for my church, for your church. And there's something in, in each of these seven letters for every believer, for me, and for you. And in this seventh letter, the final letter, the letter to Laodicea, Jesus wants to tell us the truth about spiritual apathy, about our spiritual apathy, and how he can shake you out of it, how he can shake our church out of it. And this letter says three things. One, we must beware spiritual apathy. Beware it. Two, we must instead be zealous for Christ. Beware spiritual apathy. Be zealous for Christ. And then third, doing that... God's promise to you is you'll be lifted up with Jesus. Beware spiritual apathy, be zealous for Christ. The promise is you'll be lifted up. That's Jesus' path for this church and for us out of apathy and into victory. So why don't we pause for a moment? We'll pray. 
ask for the Spirit's help to hear these words, and then we'll look at the text. Would you bow with me, and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Renew our hearts so that we can call on you. And Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear what you are saying to our church and to our lives. We ask in the powerful name of Jesus, amen? Amen. Now, difficult thing with spiritual apathy is it is very hard to see in yourself. It's very hard to see in yourself. And that's because we are rarely apathetic about everything. We're rarely apathetic about everything going on in our lives. Uh, we can be captivated by all kinds of things. Comedians on YouTube, that renovation project you have at home, uh, keeping the kids' grades up for school, all of these things can require our attention and it can be exciting and require effort. The trouble is we get busy and active in all these other things and it just kind of clouds over, covers over the persistent blandness that we feel towards the things of God. And so we can't see it in ourselves. It's like, you know, you're at a restaurant and you're eating French fries and you're eating those fries and you, you know, this big glob of ketchup just kind of rolls down your chin and you're talking to your friends, you're having a great old time and there's this big gross gob of ketchup just dangling there like a gargoyle, right? You need somebody, you need somebody to say, there's something on your face. <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> Clean that up. I can't concentrate. Would you get that ketchup? Well, in verse 14 here, Jesus is the friend who sees the ketchup. He's the friend who sees the ketchup, and he's the friend who wants to tell you the truth about the grossness. <laughs> to tell us the truth about ourselves. So look at verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and this is Jesus' introduction to us, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's how Jesus introduces himself to the church of Laodicea. Laodiceans who are living in self-deception, they can't see themselves. Well, Jesus can see them. He knows the truth. Jesus is, look at that verse, he is the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the amen. And Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning of God's creation. He's the amen, and he's the beginning. Now, why is Jesus introducing himself to us like that? Well, that word amen means truly. That's what the word amen means. It means truly. So when you finish your prayers with that word amen, what you're saying is that prayer was true. That prayer was right. I agree with that prayer. That prayer was on point. You know, yes, Lord, amen, may you bring it about. So when Jesus says he is the amen, he is saying that he is the ultimate last word. He's the ultimate last word. He is the truth. And so if you want to know God's truth, you'll listen to Jesus. He's the faithful and true witness. He is the accurate representation of all of God's truth what God knows, and who God is. Jesus is the foundation of everything true, uniquely. That's him. That's who he is. And Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning of God's creation. Now, 
Jesus isn't telling us there that he's the first created thing, that he's the first thing God made and then he made everything else. That's not what beginning of God's creation means in the book of Revelation. That word beginning doesn't always have to mean first. It can also mean beginning as in first place, as in overall and preeminence. That word beginning is how Jesus and God are described often in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. And so here, Jesus as the beginning, that means something more like he is the source. He is the source. He is the headwaters of all the good things God is making and will make. So John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote a gospel And he says the same kind of thing about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, all things were made through Jesus. All things were made through Jesus. He's the source of all things God has made. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the agent of God's creation, of God's work in the world. From the first creation to the coming new creation, it's Jesus who sets the table. He sets the table. Jesus is the amen, he's the foundation of truth, and Jesus is the beginning. He is the source of everything good. And that's why seeing Jesus like that, knowing that's who he is, that's why spiritual apathy in response to Jesus makes him sick to his stomach. Makes him sick to his stomach. I mean, you might respond to Jesus a few ways, right, when you know who he is. You might hate Jesus, You might fear Jesus. You might adore Jesus. But when you encounter the amen and the beginning, the last thing you do is yawn. The last thing you do is go, oh, (laughs) that is not how you respond to Jesus. But that's what was happening in Laodicea. That's what had settled into the hearts of the Laodiceans. So look at verses 15 and 16 now. Jesus says to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Spit you out is how the Bible also describes vomiting. Vomiting. The church in Laodicea was lukewarm And Jesus found it nauseating. Nauseating. And I don't need to go down this path too much, but you know the taste. (laughs) You know the taste. I mean, you can't gargle enough mouthwash afterwards, right? You, you, You use that toothbrush and you get it down to the nub trying to get that awful taste out of your mouth. The city of Laodicea had two neighbors. Herapolis and Colossae. So to the north was the city of Herapolis, and in Herapolis, there were hot springs. All right, vacation destination, hot springs. People would go there, and they'd soothe their achy muscles in those hot tubs, in that hot water. That was Herapolis. And then in Colossae, to the south, there were cold springs and cold water. And so, you know, the drinking water was refreshing in Colossae. But Laodicea? In the middle, well, they had to pipe it all in. They had to pipe in the hot water from Herapolis, pipe in the cold water from Colossae, and what happened? Well, by the time it reached them, the hot water was no longer hot. 
The cold water was no longer cold. It was lukewarm, often stagnant and dirty, not good for a soak, not good for a drink. And maybe you've had that, op, you know, that experience. You've got your suit on, you've got your towel, you're heading out to the hot tub, and you dip your toe in, and someone forgot to turn it on. Oh, I'm not going to sit in there now. And maybe you've had the experience. You're at the beach, it's a hot day, you reach inside for the cooler for that drink, and someone forgot to put the ice in. They left the lid up. It's warm. Oh, how disappointing. How disappointing. And that's why Jesus tells this church, I wish you were either hot or cold. Because I wish you were useful. I wish your, your, your faith and your obedience were making an impact. I wish you were, you were paying attention to me so that I could prepare you for all that's to come. As it is, you're disappointing. <laughs> you're nauseating. Now, to be spit out of Jesus' mouth doesn't mean losing one's salvation. We have to remember that this is a church that Jesus is talking to. It's a church. These are, these are children of God that he loves. Being spit out of Jesus' mouth here is more of an expression of his displeasure, his displeasure with them, his grief over them. And if they can't sort it out, the consequences, the consequences of what will happen, it's, it's like what Jesus has warned the other churches, right? That if they don't, if they don't follow him out of apathy and into victory, the warning is, I'm going to turn off the lights. I'm going to snuff out the candle of that church if things don't change. Which probably means something like, I'm going to remove my power from your ministry. And your church will die, and you'll disperse, and things will have to be taken up by others more faithful to God's call. That's the danger. That's the danger to your soul, to you personally, if apathy takes hold. That's the danger. And that's the danger to this church and to any church if apathy takes over. Beware spiritual apathy. What is spiritual apathy anyway? Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he had a good definition for it. This is what he said. He said, spiritual apathy is living your life as if you didn't really need anything from God. That's what it is. Spiritual apathy is living your life as if you didn't really need anything from God. Do you see how Jesus exposes that attitude in verse 17? Right? Do you, do you see that? that? You say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's the attitude of spiritual apathy. We need nothing. Laodicea was an affluent place. It was a rich city, prosperous place. They show up in history actually because at one point they had this devastating earthquake. Buildings and infrastructure just leveled. And the Roman Empire decided that they would send resources to Laodicea to help rebuild. We're going to help you rebuild. But the city denied the help. They denied the help and they boasted, we've got everything we need. We can rebuild, we can recover on our own with our resources, with our ingenuity, with our abilities. 
Self-sufficiency was Laodicea's motto. (laughs) We can do it. We've got it taken care of. And that that motto of self-sufficiency rubbed off on the church. It rubbed off on the church. They said, I need nothing. Spiritual apathy is living your life as if you really didn't need anything from God. And it might be easy for you and I, you know, for, for this church to say, well, well, of course they were apathetic. Of course they were self-sufficient. They were so rich, and that's not our problem. That's not my problem. Money isn't my problem. Our church isn't affluent. This letter from Jesus is for those Flamborough churches. Yeah, you know the type. This letter's for those Ancaster churches. Oh, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. They fix all their problems with money. This is for them. You know, but self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency is trickier than that. It's trickier than that. It doesn't just come from confidence in money, though certainly that is a danger. And that might describe you. That is a danger. Right? Jesus says a lot about that in other places in Scripture. Luke 18, 24, Jesus says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It can be a hindrance. It can create a feeling of, I've got this looked after. I've got enough. <laughs> but you can also have overconfidence in your health. You can also have a feeling of self-sufficiency because your work is going so well. You can feel self-sufficient because you're smart, because you're doing well at school, you've got the right credentials. You don't wake up and pray for daily bread anymore because you wake up in the morning and you don't feel like you need anything. You feel like you've got enough on the go. (laughs) So self-sufficiency can come from many places. But wherever it comes from, however it occurs in your heart, What it does is it replaces Jesus as your security. It replaces Jesus as your guard. It replaces Jesus as the source of what you really need. And you become spiritually numb. You become spiritually bored. And the worst part of it is you become out of touch with Christ. You lose intimacy and communion with him. You're out of touch with him. So I remember a story that Tim Keller told about one of his mentors, a college professor named Dr. Addison Leach, which is a great name for a college professor, Dr. Addison Leach. And the story is that two young women at the college who were both bright and their respective parents, you know, wanted them to get master's degrees and to go on to careers. But instead, at college, they both became Christians. And they both decided that they were going to become missionaries, And their parents had a fit. Their parents had a fit. And one of the mothers called up Dr. Leach, you know, thinking that Dr. Leach was one of the reasons the girls had become religious fanatics, right, rather than pursuing the course that she wanted them to take, getting a career, having some security, you know, instead of going wildly off somewhere into the blue. And the mother said to Dr. Leach, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, to start a career and get something in the bank so she could have some security, and then she can go off and do whatever she wants. And Dr. Leach responded to this mother. He said, please just let me remind you of something. We are all on a little ball of rock called earth, 
and we're spinning along through space at zillions of miles per hour. And even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die. Which means that under every single one of us, there's a trap door that's going to open one day and we're all going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath will be either the everlasting arms of God or nothing at all. And you're saying, maybe your daughter can get a master's degree and have some security? <laughs> you see how silly that sounds? <laughs> and what Jesus is telling us in verse 17 is that you can be rich and poor at the same time. You can be rich and poor at the same time. They say, I'm rich, we've prospered, we need nothing. But Jesus says, you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You can be rich and poor at the same time. You can have money, you can have good looks, you can have great jobs, you can, you can have your health, and yet you can have a soul that is sickly and poor and totally unprepared for eternity. Which is what Jesus sees when he looks at the Laodiceans. They think they have it all together, but they lack the things that only God can give them. The things that can't be lost, they are missing completely. So beware of spiritual apathy. What do we do instead? What does Jesus want for us instead? What is the, the course out of apathy and into victory? Well, Jesus says, be zealous. You want to fight apathy? Learn to be zealous. Be zealous for me. And how does that happen? Well, look at verse 18. This is the first invitation from Jesus to us out of our apathy. Verse 18, he says to the church, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus says the first thing to get out of apathy is understand that only I can provide for your greatest needs. Get that into your heart. Get that into your head. What you really need, spiritual riches, they come from me, right? Jesus says, buy from me the things you really need. Now he's talking to marketplace people, right? The Laodiceans, they were affluent, they were prosperous, they had a lot going on, marketplace people, and so Jesus uses marketplace language, right? He says, buy from me. You like buying things? Well, buy from me. If he was talking to health nuts, right, he might say, you like training? Well, train with me. If he was talking to people whose confidence was in their education, he might say, you like studying? Well, study me. <laughs> if people's lives were wrapped up in their work, he might say, hey, you like working? Well, work for me. The point is, come to me for what you need. Look to me for the things that you need. Laodicea, they had three main industries, all right? Three big things going on in that city. Finances, clothing, textiles, and medical care. And specifically, in the medical department, they were known for this eye salve that was, you know, very, very good for people's eyesight. So people would come from far and wide to get some of this eye ointment. That's what they were known for, banking and finances and, and clothing textiles and this eye ointment. That's what they were known for. And Jesus here uses those three obsessions and he counsels them to get those things from him instead. Come to me and get those things from me instead because the ones I have for you are so much better. He says to them, right, I've got better gold than you do. 
I've got gold that is better than the gold in your banks. It's been refined by fire, and it will make you rich. What is that gold? It's the gold of his grace. It's the gold of his grace, which forgives of sin, which makes your heart pure in God's sight. And he's got better clothes, too. He's got better clothing than they have. Their clothing only covers the body. The clothes that he gives are pure. They're white, and they cover not only their bodies, but they cover your shame. Jesus' clothing covers your shame. It covers you, instead of with shame, with the love of God and his peace. That's what you want to be wrapped up in, right? And Jesus says, and I've got better eye medicine than you do too. I've got salve to anoint your eyes, and it will make your eyes not only be able to see 2020, you'll have spiritual insight. You'll have spiritual understanding. You'll know things about God's purposes in this world that you would know no other way. So come and get these things from me. Buy from Jesus true spiritual resources. You know, I remember uh, hearing years ago somebody describing that some people follow Jesus like they are vampire Christians. Have you ever heard someone talk about vampire Christians? You know, someone who says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please. Like a little of your blood, enough to get that whole forgiveness thing sorted out. Like a little of your blood, but I don't care to be your student. I don't care for much else. I don't care to have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? It's a vampire Christian. But after hearing what Jesus says to the Laodicean church, can you really imagine that this is an approach that Jesus finds acceptable? I mean, stop to just think about it. How could one trust Jesus for forgiveness of sins and then not also trust him for so much more than that? If you believe that Jesus is good enough and powerful enough to forgive you of your sins, that means you believe he is the perfect son of God. And if he is the perfect son of God, then you can trust him that he is right about everything. He's right about everything, that he alone has the key to every aspect of your life here on earth. And if you believe that, you'll want to stay as close to him as you can. You'll want his opinion on your job, on your family, on your bank account. You'll know that you need him. And so the first step out of apathy is to realize that Jesus has everything you truly need. Jesus says another thing here too. Plotting the course out of apathy into victory. The second thing Jesus says, and this is the main command in these verses, if you look at verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And here it is. He says, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. So here's this wonderful picture of Jesus in verse 19. This wonderful picture, right? The Laodiceans, they taste like puke. They taste like puke. And Jesus says, I still love you. I still love you. They taste awful. But Jesus holds them in his mouth a little while longer. (laughs) Parents, I know you hate throw up. You hate it. But when your kid is sick, you're there. (laughs) You're not, oh, (laughs) tell me when it's over. You're there. You're cleaning it up, right? You're wiping their mouth. It's compassion. It's love. I'm going to hang in there with you even though it's gross. (laughs) And this is the grace of Jesus. He is not done with them yet. He's not done with them yet. 
those he loves, he reproves, and he disciplines. And so he says, be zealous and repent. Repenting means turn around. (laughs) Stop being apathetic. (laughs) Stop doing that. And being zealous means having passion. So now start having passion and keep having passion, which is another way of saying, put your heart into it. Start to learn how to put your heart into following Jesus. You know, when you are united to Jesus by faith, here's the wonderful gift of being united to Jesus. When you are united to Jesus by faith, God is acting in your life. God is acting in your life to bring about what you do not deserve and cannot accomplish on your own. That's what he's doing in your life. He's bringing about things that you do not deserve and cannot accomplish on your own. But here's the other side of that coin. You are not to be a mere passenger in that process. You are not to be a mere passenger in that process. In the scriptures, you and I, we are commanded to put off the old person and put on the new. We are told to to grow, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, be zealous, when he says to you, be zealous, he's reminding us that there are things that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Let's get on and do them. And although we cannot do them on our own, they will not be done for us. So being zealous, being alive in Christ, means that we ought to pursue whatever it is, whatever it is we need to do to increasingly take on Christ's character, to increasingly live in his power, to increasingly spread his word and his work to our neighbors and the world. How do you learn to be zealous like that? How do you learn to be zealous and passionate about your need for Jesus? Well, one way is the habit of regular confession of sin and repentance. That'll do wonders for your zeal. It will. When was the last time you let Jesus correct you about something? Isn't it funny how we can go days and weeks without inviting Jesus to search our souls and say, Jesus... I know I'm off. (laughs) I know I need your help. Would you come in and search my soul? Tell me where I've gone wrong so that I can walk in your ways again. When was the last time you did that? And see how it fires your zeal because you'll realize where you are (laughs) and where the Lord wants you to be. When was the last time you let Jesus change your schedule? When was the last time you let Jesus lead you out of your comfort zone? Right? Confession and repentance builds these habits into your heart. Learning to be zealous starts there. Confession and repentance. Here's another way to learn how to be zealous. You need to get with God's people. You need to engage in community. You won't last long trying to be zealous if you're trying to do it on your own. I mean, sometimes we need to stir other people up, and sometimes you and I, we need to be stirred up by others. And that comes by being with God's people discussing the things of God and what he wants from us. That's why attendance matters, right? Isn't it great that Sunday service is every week? (laughs) Because every seven days, (laughs) we need to be fired up again, right? We do that together. Just being together is a great way to learn how to be zealous. And you know, learning to be zealous, and this is what I've discovered over the years, learning to be zealous often comes when we take a step in service towards others a step in service towards others. I mean, you might feel lethargic in your faith. 
You might feel bored with the things of God, but if you can ask the Lord to just give you enough zeal, to just give you enough to take one small step towards serving someone else, I found that the Lord will often increase my zeal to then take another step and another. Paul Miller wrote a book called A Praying Life, and in it he tells the story of his daughter Emily, teenage daughter Emily, and Paul was regularly praying for his teenage daughter that she would not love the things of this world because it seemed to Paul as he was just looking at her life that it was almost like she was standing alone in the, in the middle of a field dominated by the icons of modern American teenage life. I mean, boyfriends and, and friends and appearance and sports and clothes. And Jesus was a, a fading childhood memory for his daughter Emily. And at times his prayers for her seemed weak and they seemed powerless, but he prayed. And the Lord gave Emily just enough zeal, just enough zeal, just enough that she decided to take a year off between high school and college and work in an orphanage in Guatemala. And then God gave her zeal there to take another step. And she came back a different person. And Emily said that during that year, God showed me areas of my life where I'd put up walls, places where I didn't want God. The quest for popularity was replaced by a quest for his love and a desire to be with people to whom I could show that love. So you learn to be zealous often with just one small step. You ask the Lord for enough zeal for one step in serving someone else, and I found that he will give enough zeal for the next step too. How does Jesus lead us out of apathy? He says, start coming to me for true spiritual resources. He says, be zealous, be passionate, put your heart into it. And then the last thing he says in this path out of apathy into victory, he says, to be zealous, here's what it takes, open the door. Open the door. So look here at verse 20. Jesus says to them, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, Laodicea has been a church where Jesus is on the outside. They've been a church where Jesus is on the outside. And if you want to be cured of apathy, he says, let me in. Let me back in. Open the door and let Jesus in. And he says, and I will eat with you. In the ancient world, right, in the ancient East, eating together in someone's home, you know, and this is often the case too in other places of the world today, but eating in someone's home was the greatest gesture of friendship, of hospitality, and of honor. And this is the amazing grace of Jesus' words to this church, right? He says, even if you are lukewarm, even if you are complacent, even if you are bored with God, I am not finished with you Yet, I am willing to come to you and renew fellowship with you. And Jesus lets us imagine here that knowing him and walking with him, communion with Jesus, what does it feel like? Well, according to verse 20, it feels like a meal with a loved mentor and friend. That's what walking closely with Jesus feels like. A meal, sitting down to a meal with someone you love. A mentor and a friend. But... You've got to open the door. 
You've got to open the door. There's a, a famous painting of this scene in Scripture, a famous painting by an artist named William Hunt. And in this painting, it shows Jesus, and he's very ornate. There's Jesus, and he's standing, preparing to knock on this overgrown door. It's covered with, you know, vines, and it's long unopened. It hasn't been opened in a long time, but Jesus is standing there, and he's preparing to knock on it. And when William Hunt painted the scene, he only put a doorknob on the inside of the door. He only put it on the inside of the door. Jesus is knocking, but you must turn the handle and let him in. You must turn the handle and let him in. And maybe, maybe you've never opened the door before. Maybe you're here and you've never opened the door to Jesus before. But you realize today that Jesus is the amen. And he is the beginning. And he knows the real you. And when Jesus said to Laodicea, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, you said, that's me too. That's me too. Well, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder if Jesus will give himself to you. You don't have to wonder if he will forgive you of your sin and begin working in your life because he stands at the door and knocks. You turn the handle and let him in. And you can do that today. Maybe you let Jesus in many years ago. Maybe it was years ago when you let him in, but you've been a negligent host. You've ignored him. And life with Jesus no longer feels like a meal between friends. It feels more like a fading memory of something that once was. Where is Jesus today? He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Let him in and he will come in. Turn the handle and he will gladly come in again. Or maybe, maybe you've welcomed Jesus in. You've opened the door, but you've only let him in so far as the living room. You know, hang up your coat and stay there. But there's other doors. There's other doors in your life that you haven't opened. An author named Daryl Johnson, he says, Jesus will never be satisfied until he has access to every room. Until he has access to every room because all the rooms of your life were made for him and only he can make them what they were made to be. So will you let him in a little further? <laughs> will you open up all those doors? Open up the door marked family. Let him into the room marked work. Let him into the room called money. Let him into the room called past. Let him into the room called future. Let him into the room called worries. Let him into the room called dreams. Turn the handle and let him in. Beware spiritual apathy and be zealous. Receive all of Jesus' spiritual riches. Be passionate for Christ. Open the door of your life and let him in. And when you do that, here's the great promise. Beware spiritual apathy. Be, be zealous. And here's the last part of this letter. Be lifted up. This is the great promise that follows it. Be lifted up. Look at verse 21 and 22. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is the Lord. That's the picture here. He is the Lord who sits on the throne of history. He sits on the throne of eternity. He has conquered Satan and sin and death and the rule, the authority, the throne. It's his forever. And Jesus' promise to the church is, if you recover your zeal, you can look forward with confidence 
you can look forward with confidence to ruling with me in that kingdom. And this is the gracious promise of a future with Christ that provides the lift to take off in zeal. You've been to an airport, you've had to get on a plane, and you've looked at those big jumbo jets and you've thought to yourself, how does something that big get off the ground? And you felt like a jumbo jet at times, right? In your, in your heart. You wake up in the morning and you know, I ought to spend time with the Lord, but you sit in your chair at the kitchen table and you feel like a jumbo jet. How am I ever going to get off the ground? It's the promise of the gracious future with Jesus. That provides the lift. That sets the horizon. And off you go, one step at a time. Jesus comes through the door, not only to eat with us, but to lift us up on the throne. And that's the remedy to nauseating spiritual apathy. Let's be zealous. And zeal comes when you let Jesus in, when you receive his spiritual riches, and the promise is when you let him in, he will lift you up. That's the path from apathy to victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the words of Jesus to this church. And Lord, this is a word to us too. We are in danger of apathy, maybe even more than we know. Lord Jesus, would you empower us to open the door, let you in, and discover zeal and passion for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.